This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're finishing up the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, a legendary Viking king. And you'll see that it's a very bad idea to get engaged when you're already married, especially if you're married to the daughter of one of Odin's especially vengeful warrior maidens. You'll also learn some super manly Viking ways to deal with the death of a loved one, like purposefully stabbing yourself in the foot with a spear, or burning down a city. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a very smelly little guy from Brazilian folklore who when he's not failing at juggling, is cursing your popcorn kernels not to pop. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 13b, Why'd It Have to Be Snakes? This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. This is the second podcast in a series telling the legend of Ragnar Lothbrok. I took a break from it last week to do a Halloween episode, but if you're picking it up here, you might want to go back and listen to 13a first. Previously on the podcast, we met young Oslog, the daughter of Sigurd the Dragonslayer and Brynhild the Prophetess. She was on the run with her grandfather Heimer when they stopped to stay at a farmhouse and the shockingly ugly couple murdered their grandfather to rob him. Unaware that Oslog would remember the event, Grima and her husband Aki, the couple, took her in and raised her as their own. We also met King Ragnar Lothbrok, and he got married. Twice. First to a barbarian princess in Norway, and then to a fairly boring princess. He divorced the first to marry the second, and when she died, he went on a trip to Norway to visit his friends his servants found their way to the ugly couple's farmhouse, where Oslog had been raised, in order to bake some bread for their king. The distractingly ugly Grima invited the men in and let them get to work baking bread. She said that her daughter would be home soon. Oslog was going by the name Kraka, meaning crow, after Grima's mother. They gave it to her the day they found her, or so they told Oslog. The woman, now in her early 20s, had seen the ships off on the horizon, and she had slipped off into the forest. For some reason, Grima refused to let her bathe, and it took her extra long to get the caked-on dirt off of her. She returned to the farmhouse where she had spent a childhood, half as a daughter, half as a captive, and was surprised to see two servants with their mother. Grima ordered her out of the room, but she smiled and talked and charmed the men so much that they completely didn't pay attention to the bread and burned it. They turned to Grima and said, Wow, your daughter is beautiful. And you are painfully ugly. I mean, she looks absolutely nothing like you. Grima said that she used to look like her daughter. Don't worry about it. They say, Still, I don't know. Her bone structure and everything is completely different. And wow, you're just so ugly. They eventually return to Ragnar with their bread, and everyone complains about it. Ragnar, too, is pretty mad. First his wife dies, and then burned bread? Can this month get any worse? They say it's not their fault. There was this really good-looking woman there, and they couldn't help but stare at her. They lost track of the bread, but Ragnar, you should see this woman, might make a good queen after the untimely death of the last one them maybe not understanding the concept of too soon. Ragnar's wary, but says, okay, 
you know what, just tell her to come see me. There are some stipulations, though. She can either be dressed nor undressed, fed nor unfed, and not be alone, yet no man or woman may accompany her. Back at the farmhouse, they tell Kraka, or Oslog, this, and Grima smiled. This girl will be stuck here forever. It was impossible. Oslog thought hard about it, and she told them that she would be there tomorrow. The next morning, all the men see two figures approaching them, coming to the ships, and it turns out that it's Oslog. She's wrapped in a fishing net, with her long hair draping over her chest, so she's neither naked nor clothed. She's nibbling a leek, so she's neither fed nor unfed, and she's walking with a dog. She's not alone, yet not accompanied by any man or woman. She had met the challenge. Ragnar invited her on board, and she asked for a pledge of peace for her and her companion. When Ragnar reached out to her, the dog bit him, and his men killed the dog. But this isn't really addressed, despite it immediately going against the pledge that she just asked for. Anyway, Oslog shrugs it off, and they talk. Really, though, what is it that Ragnar has against dogs? Ragnar is captivated both by her beauty and intelligence, and as they talk, he's enchanted by her, and asks for her hand in marriage. She says she would like to go home now. He says, wait, what? Really, I'm the king. Marry me. Here, you can even have Thora, my dead wife's shirt. It's a really nice shirt. To which Oslog says, one, no thank you, and two, let me go home, and you go on whatever errand you set out to do. If, when you pass back by here, you still want to get married, then come find me at the poor man's house. With that, she left, and no one stopped her. Months later, after Ragnar had visited with friends further north, he came back and sent men to the house. There, they found Oslog sitting down to dinner with the atrociously ugly couple, and she knew what they wanted. The next morning, she rose early and went to Grima and Aki's bedroom. She said she was leaving this disgusting little hovel. They acted outraged and made to forbid her, but she only smiled. She said that they didn't have that sort of authority over her. King Hymer did, but he's long dead. With the mention of that name, they froze. In her, Fredo, I knew it was you, moment, she said, yeah, Hymer. They thought she didn't remember, that she was too young and couldn't yet talk, but them smashing open the harp, the spray of blood on Aki's face, it was burned in her memory. There were years when she dreamed of killing them, but that had softened with time. No, she wouldn't kill them. Even though they committed a horrible act and sundered her from her royal heritage, they still raised her, so she would not let evil be done to them. She then said her first ever prophecy, that each day would be worse for them than the one that came before it, and the last would be worst of all. And then she left them, never to return. As an aside, she does have the power to prophesize, inherited from her mother, but this just feels like more of an observation. I mean, they are super poor, old, greedy farmers living in Norway, winter is coming, and they just lost their one worker. This is less of a prophecy and more of a statement of fact that each day is going to be worse than the one before it. But I digress. She gets to the ships, and she and Ragnar embrace. She accepts his proposal. They take off for Denmark. On the ships, the men are making up the beds, and Ragnar would like some time with his fiancée. 
She hears this, laughs, and says, absolutely not. Ragnar is more than a little surprised, but she says they need to have a wedding feast in his kingdom and do sacrifices to the gods before that's going to happen. Remember, he doesn't yet know she's Sigurd and Brynhild's daughter, basically a princess herself. He thinks that she's some beautiful peasant he picked up on his trip to visit his buddies, but guesses that they're only a few days out from his kingdom. He can wait that long. They marry, and weddings were a multi-day affair, which involved feasting and sacrifice to the gods. Ragnar said, okay, now? And she still says no. They're married, but the wedding celebrations are not complete. She's seen what will happen to their son if they don't wait until they've made the sacrifices at the end of the three days. Ragnar doesn't want to wait any longer, though. And, yeah. That night, they conceive Ivar. Time passes, and they have a happy marriage, and Ivar the Boneless is born. There are many different explanations as to why he's called Ivar the Boneless. I'm going with him having some sort of congenital defect that warped his legs. One of the sources I read said that all of his bones were cartilage, which I don't think is actually possible, but someone with more medical knowledge than me, please let me know if I'm wrong. Anyway, they had several sons together. In addition to Eric and Agnar from his second marriage to Thora, his children with Oslog were Ivar, as I mentioned, and Bjorn, Fitzirk, and Rognvald, and my pronunciation on these is going to be rough. As an aside, it gets super tricky as to how many children Ragnar had, and with whom. The sources don't even agree as to how many wives he has. Many sources omit Lagertha, one omits Oslog, and others randomly bring in children he had with women other than the three wives. It's confusing, and I'm just going to stick with those six I mentioned just now, plus the son he had with Lagertha, but he won't come up again. And I'll just leave it at that. But no, it's not even close to being that simple. Ivar, despite being carried into battles on a shield, was very wise and a brilliant tactician. He would also end battles with a single arrow sometimes, if he could. The sons of Ragnar did what Vikings do, raiding and conquering lands. Sometimes they would go to battle just because someone was rumored to be stronger than their kingdom, or they wanted to test themselves against supposed magical powers. They fight many battles, and one time they defeated an army and a pair of supposedly invincible troll-like horses, but their brother Roggenwald died. So they killed everyone and burned the city down, just because. Ragnar and his sons were known all across Europe, and the kingdom was powerful. Ragnar struck up a friendship with another king in Sweden, King Eystein. This king had a strange super cow that he used to put out in front of his army that used to drive enemies crazy and scare them off. And if that didn't work, the cow would just gore them. Really, I cannot find any explanation on this cow, and it was apparently repeatedly sacrificed to the gods with absolutely no explanation as to how that works. Anyway, Eystein was a powerful king with a beautiful daughter. And when Ragnar was visiting his court, some of Ragnar's men got to drinking and got to talking, and some of his top-level advisors got to drinking, and then more drinking, and then they kind of lost track of things. The next morning, they remembered that they had talked to the king, and the princess was now engaged to Ragnar, who, yes, was still married to Oslog. Much like the whole Lagertha issue, he thought the alliance to a king with a super cow was more preferable than to be married to the daughter of some farmer. When he got home, he realized he was in kind of a tough spot. If he married the girl, his own sons might rise up against him, let alone his extremely angry current wife, who he didn't yet know was the daughter of a very vengeful Valkyrie. 
But he couldn't reconsider the engagement because King Einstein would take it as an extreme insult and maybe make war against him. He said no one was to speak of this under pain of death. He needed to figure it out. That night, when he and Oslog were in bed, he told her for the fourth time that night that, no, he didn't have anything to tell her. Why does she keep asking? She says, because when someone is already married and they happen to get engaged, well, that really seems like something. He demanded to know who told her, but she said she already knew. She was a prophet, like her mother before her. Oh, and by the way, they still don't know her name is Oslog, and they've been calling her Kraka the whole time. Ragnar is confused, because that really, really ugly crone wasn't a prophet. And that's when Oslog reveals her heritage. Nope, Ragnar says, that's not true. How could the daughter of Sigur, the legendary dragon slayer, end up living in a hovel with farmers? They go back and forth, where she tries to convince him, but he just calls her crazy. Then she says that she can prove it. She's with child now, by the way, and it will be a son. And here's what Ragnar should do. If that baby is born with a distinctive quality marking his dragon-slaying heritage, then it will prove that she is the daughter of royalty. If this isn't the case, Ragnar can do whatever he wants, even marry the princess if he wants to. Well, the time comes when the baby's born, and Oslog, without even looking at the baby, orders him taken to Ragnar. Ragnar takes one look at the baby's face and realizes Oslog was who she said she was. In one of the baby's eyes was the image of a snake. More specifically, an Ouroboros, or a snake biting its own tail. The baby, as it turns out, is named Sigurd, after his grandfather. He immediately decided that he would not marry the Swedish king's daughter, and word spread throughout the world that the daughter of Sigurd and Brynhild had survived. Unfortunately, Ragnar did not inform King Eystein, the king in Sweden, of his decision, and the time for him to come marry the princess came and went, and he didn't show. The Swedish king developed an open hatred for Ragnar, and it was well known, and this was compounded when Ragnar's oldest sons, Eric and Agnar, from Thora, his second wife, remember, decided that since the man hated their family, this was a good opportunity to do some light plundering in his land. They arrived there, but they misjudged both the Swedish king's men and his incredible super cow, and the Swedish king raised an army three times the size of their little force, and though Ragnar's sons hold up well, there's still the matter of the invincible super cow goring soldiers left and right. Agnar, not one to lead from behind, was killed in battle, and Eric was captured. Long story short, Eric is executed. He requests, and I have no idea why he did this, so if you know, please shoot me an email, that he be laid down on a bed of spears, and that he dies lifted up above the slain. Work came back to Denmark, and Oslog took it very, very personally. It was winter, and in the ancient medieval worlds, people generally didn't fight wars in winter. She called all the sons of Ragnar together and told them the news about their stepbrothers, to which they said, Wow, that's too bad. I mean, they said, there's no way we're going to avenge them. He has a magical pagan super cow, and it's winter, so the ships are literally frozen in place. But Oslog and the three-year-old Sigurd guilt them all into going, so they break the ships free and Ivar begins devising a plan. That plan, as it turns out, was to get a lot of warriors together and kill a lot of people in Sweden. Not exactly complex, 
basically, the sons of Ragnar sail ships in, and Oslog leaves the overland troops, and they bring total war to the area, burning every structure they come across and killing everyone, men, women, and children. From here on out, Oslog will go by her warrior name, Randolin, though I'll just keep calling her Oslog to keep things less confusing. When the brothers landed near King Eystein's forces, there was still the matter of the magic, invincible, possible god cow, but Ivar the Boneless had a plan. The plan makes absolutely no sense to me, but here goes. He commands the men to cut down an elm tree and carve it into a bow and two arrows. They do that, but it doesn't look like it would be that great. Ivar, remember he has to be carried everywhere, and so he orders the men to carry him to the front. They hear the terrible bellows of the cow, and Ivar was right there. Seeing her through the trees, he fired two arrows into each of her eyes, but that only made her mad. Then, when he got really close, he had his men fling his limp body onto the cow, and he crushed it like a boulder, and killed it. Yep, light enough to fling at an invincible super cow, and then magically heavy enough to crush it to death. I really shouldn't be surprised that there's no explanation given. After that, the forces of King Eystein are destroyed, and the land is left leaderless. Ragnar's sons leave, and they keep raiding. As an aside, the other main version of the King Eystein story is that Ragnar was getting concerned of his son's growing power, and he put King Eystein in charge of Upper Sweden to defend against his sons taking the land. Eric and Agnar came and decided that, yes, they would like to have that land, and that's how the war starts. I thought the other way was a better story, especially because of the magic cow and the reveal of Oslog's heritage, so that's why I went with that one. Ragnar's sons raid like it's their job, because it basically is, and they hear of a town where a strong tribe lives. They decide that they'd like to test themselves against the tribe's strength, or just attack them and take all their stuff, however you want to read it. They kindly give the town a choice to either submit completely and give up all their stuff, or fight and be crushed eventually. The town chooses the latter, and the brothers start a siege. And the town fort holds out, for a long time, and the sons of Ragnar decide that it really isn't worth it, and they start packing up. The warriors of the town see them packing up, and they, no joke, dangle all the golden jewels, everything they have of worth, over the walls to entice the men to stay and keep the siege going. I guess rubbing it in Ragnar's sons' faces. Well, that turns out to be a bad idea because the sons of Ragnar have a meeting of the mines and decide that, huh, those walls are made of wood. You know what gets weaker when it's set on fire? You know, besides everything? Wood. They set the town's walls on fire after somehow spending too much time not thinking of just that idea. They kill everyone inside and take all the shiny things that have been dangled out in front of them. They captured many towns, and when they thought they had conquered everything, they found some more things to conquer and took those as well. Ragnar, in the meantime, had been winning back the lands that had been lost in the many civil wars that had happened since before he was king. Finally happy with the state of his kingdom, Ragnar was sitting at home, and he began to hear stories of his sons. And rather than be happy for them, with all their stuff and indiscriminate killing, he began to worry about his own legacy of taking stuff and killing people. Had he taken enough stuff, or killed enough people, to be remembered as better than his sons? This was a real problem. As an aside, there are many stories of Ragnar conquering basically everything as well. He supposedly conquered Rome, quote, at the height of its power, 
though anyone with any knowledge of world history knows that this was definitely not the height of Rome's power. The Western Empire collapsed in the 5th century, and Rome was just a small city ruled by either barbarian tribes or petty kings. It's likely that they mean the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Empire that broke away from the Western Empire and survived into the 1400s. Still, let's just say Ragnar fought many people and leave it at that. Thinking about his legacy, Ragnar knew of Great Britain to the west. It was a large place, full of kingdoms and armies. As another aside, I have to say that I'm jumping around so much in history that this is bound to get confusing. The last time we left England, we were in the 500s or 600s AD, and the Britons with an O, or the Celtic people, were fighting against the Anglo-Saxons that Vortigern led in and then lost control of, according to legend. Well, it's about 300 years after that time, and, spoiler alert, the Anglo-Saxons pretty much run the place now, despite King Arthur's best efforts. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, but I just wanted to let you know that it wasn't the Britons that Ragnar will be fighting. Ragnar thought about it. Anyone could conquer a land with a huge army and hundreds of ships. It took a powerful leader, a brilliant tactician, to try to conquer a land with only two ships. He was going to conquer the kingdoms of the West with just two ships. That or he would die doing so, and he would be remembered as very brave and not at all stupid for trying to conquer Great Britain with just two ships. They aren't small ships, though, and together they can hold 500 men. He's walking aboard, and Oslog comes up to him. She has something for him, and he can see she's choking back tears. It's a shirt she sewed for him, in return for the shirt he offered her at the very beginning of their relationship. Now, years and years later, she wanted to give him something to help with the times ahead. It was a shirt without a seam, blessed by the gods, so that it couldn't be pierced, and, while he wore it, his wounds wouldn't bleed. She broke down, but wouldn't tell him why. They embraced, and he set sail for Great Britain. It starts out bad, and that the ships wreck when they get near the coast. The losses aren't that great, though, and Ragnar gets to doing what he does best, burning and pillaging. They came to shore in the kingdom of Northumbria, where King Ella was moderately serious about not wanting Vikings in his land, and he roused a massive army, much, much larger than 500 people. They meet Ragnar's forces in open battle, and Ragnar's forces do not hold up at all. Ragnar, though, with his special magic shirt, cuts through any men that come against him. Eventually, though, he's outdone by sheer numbers and captured. They knew of Ragnar's sons and their reputation, but from the moment the legendary king set foot in their land, they didn't have a choice but to fight him. They didn't know who they had was Ragnar, and King Ella really didn't want to anger the sons that are conquering everything across the sea. They thought it could be Ragnar, but it also could be some petty king. And one way or another, Ragnar wouldn't speak to them. They wanted to show him they were serious, so they flung him into a pit of poisonous snakes. The writhing mass of snakes all around him, Ragnar might have thought about hubris, or maybe he was just excited that this way of dying would give him renown. Regardless, snakes crawled all over him while the soldiers watched on, waiting for them to strike. They waited for hours, but nothing happened. They weren't hurting him. King Ella came in and said, Huh, still not talking? Well, I noticed that, unlike all silk, no sword could pierce that shirt today. Let's strip him naked and see what happens. They do, and Ragnar says some cryptic final words. The snakes swarm him, and they kill him. 
So I would imagine you've noticed this shift in the story from Ragnar being the greatest and best at everything to his sons being the main focus and them being the greatest and best at everything and Ragnar dying trying to pry some small bit of glory back from their hands. He was born in a time of civil war and brought peace to his kingdoms, possibly conquering many more places, but he overreached. And in an attempt to die in glory and cement his legacy, he just comes off as a sad old man with something to prove. Ragnar's last words were remarking that, wow, with all the times that I've gone into battle, who would have guessed that snakes would kill me? And a veiled allusion to what his sons would think of this. With Ragnar's final words, King Ella was convinced that he was the legendary king. And he began to worry. He had several sons whose idea of a fun weekend was to break a fortified town and murder everyone inside. King Ella needed to get out in front of this problem, and he sent a messenger to Denmark. At the court of Ragnar's sons, everyone is hanging out, playing games, and relaxing when a messenger comes in from England, who informs them, right away, that Ragnar is dead. All the sons except Ivar the Boneless are overcome with shock, but the cunning, ruthless, and wise Ivar calmly asks what happened. The messenger explains everything, and it's met with the absolute manliest way to suppress your sadness. One of Ragnar's sons, Bjorn Ironside, so named because he fought so well, it was like he had iron sides, was holding a spear, and he gripped it so tightly in rage that it left a handprint in the hardened wood. Another source said that he shoved the spear point into his foot to better handle the grief, however that works. Vitzirk was holding the game piece and crushed it so strongly that blood spurted out from his fingernails. Sigurd's snake in the eye was paring his nails with a knife and as we all do when we get bad news, gripped the blade of the knife so hard that it cut his fingers to the bone. But, of course, he didn't flinch. Ivar was more subdued, and didn't react. He just turned bright red, and became swollen all over from rage. Very discreet, Ivar. The messenger leaves the room, and Vitserk said, We're definitely going to kill the messenger, right? I mean, it's at least a start. But Ivar refused. In fact, Ivar sent word back to King Ella that he wasn't going to bring troops against the man. He just wanted compensation for the death of his father. Ragnar hadn't prepared well and had died drunk on his own legend. What sort of ruler resorts to violence and bloodshed over a misguided sense of revenge? For those of you that listened to the Volsung episode, the answer is nearly all of Ivar's ancestors. Still, he wasn't going to attack King Ella, and he wasn't budging on this. The other brothers were angry, called Ivar a coward, and rallied their own troops. But without Ivar's warriors or his wisdom, they were at a sharp disadvantage. Ivar traveled with them, and watched his brothers retreat in the face of Ella's overwhelming force. Ivar met privately with King Ella after his brothers lost. The king of Northumbria gave him credit for not being in the attacking force, and said, Yes, I would absolutely love to compensate you for the death of your father if we can only stop this fighting. What do you want? Ivar smiled. He only wanted as much land as could be covered by an ox hide. King Ella said, that isn't that much. Okay, sure, find an ox hide and you can have the land. Remember that Ivar is the smartest of Ragnar's sons. So there's a catch. He took a hide and he had it softened and stretched until it was about three times the size of a normal hide. Maybe enough land on which to build a nice shack, but not really great compensation for his father. Then, he cut it into strips, as thin as he could get them. Then, somehow, he split the hide in half, not long ways, but cutting it through the middle, like a roll that you would make into a sandwich. 
He tied all these together and had a massively long oxhide ribbon. He then takes this ribbon and uses it to surround a large plot of land. Now, I can't imagine that this is what King Ella had in mind, and his advisors were not at all thrilled, but he accepted this fairly large loophole. It'll stop the Northmen from attacking, and he would have a strong, smart man with him, building a village. If you can't tell, Ivar is pulling a long con here. He then sets himself up as an advisor to the king, and is really great to his subjects, giving them all sorts of things. King Ella trusted him so much that he let Ivar judge in his stead from time to time, Ivar, this petty king in Great Britain, sent word back to his brothers for gold, and they sent it to him. He went secretly to King Ella's warriors and chieftains with the gold, and said, Hey, next time the king calls you to fight, maybe you're out spending this gold. Maybe you don't show up for work that day. Because spending gold and living sounds much better than fighting Vikings on a medieval battlefield, and not living, the warriors accepted this bribe. Well, Ivar went to work and he sent word back home to his brothers to get as large a force together as they could, and attack. It's a surprise to King Ella, but he still has time to muster his troops. But barely anyone shows up. Ivar says, you know what, I'll go and talk to my brothers to see if I can get them to stand down. Talking to his brothers, he tells them, you're doing a great job, and to definitely not stand down. Going back to the king, he shrugs and says he did what he could, but his brothers can't be reasoned with. He promised that he would not raise an army against King Ella, and he intends to keep that oath. He sits in York while the brothers overwhelm Ella's forces and capture the king. The captured King Ella is surprised to learn that not only do Ragnar's brothers not hate him, but that he had been working with him the whole time. Ivar comes into the chamber and tells King Ella that he has to answer for Ragnar. Ella is floored by the betrayal. He trusted Ivar. Ivar, being carried by servants, laughs and ordered that Ella be executed by one of the most painful methods out there. Now, this gets pretty raw. So if you're listening to this with kids, or eating, or just don't want to hear of an extremely violent method of execution, maybe pause it or fast forward about 45 seconds. I'm stalling to let people get to the media player. Be warned, it's very gruesome. Okay, everyone listening now wants to be listening he executes King Ella by performing a blood eagle. The blood eagle is a method of execution where the condemned has an eagle carved onto his back with a knife. And it gets so much worse. He then has the skin cut away from his spine and ribs on the back, exposing the bones. Then, the ribs are cracked from behind and broken away from the spine. And then they find the lungs and then pull them out the back. The flayed open ribs and lungs on the back look like bloody eagle wings. I know, gross stuff. So died King Ella of Northumbria. Ivar took his place, according to legend, and ruled in England. Vitserk journeyed east and died in a funeral pyre of his enemies' heads. Another brother killed the king of East Anglia in Great Britain and took his lands and died trying to conquer more. Sigurd's snake in the eye died in battle not before fathering a daughter who would help rule over all of Norway. Bjorn Ironside went pillaging as far as Italy, and then returned to Scandinavia, and died as a rich king in Sweden. Oslog died a queen, and the mother of kings, in Denmark. Ivar ruled for a long amount of time before succumbing to an illness. With his last words, he decreed that his tomb should be on the shore most susceptible to raiding. 
As long as he remained there, Great Britain would be safe from invaders. According to his legend, his tomb remained there until William the Conqueror came and pried it open, and he found that Ivar's body hadn't decomposed at all. He burned the body of the son of Ragnar Lothbrok and commenced with the Norman conquest of England. So that's it for the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons. And like I said before, you probably noticed that this ended up being more about his sons and less about Ragnar. That's because while Ragnar is a legendary figure who's likely the composite of a few Scandinavian kings, the people we know as his sons are real historical figures. Though he probably wasn't the son of a Ragnar, Ivar the Boneless was a Viking leader that helped lead what would become known as the Great Heathen Army in the invasion of Great Britain in the 9th century AD. As an aside, the history is much more complex than the stories, and this should not be seen as a stand-in for what we believe actually happened. There were many more kings in Great Britain than just King Ella of Northumbria, and the Vikings, with more leaders than just the probably mythical King Ragnar's sons, fought more battles than just one against one king. Next week, I'll be telling a story of the Firebird, a magical glowing bird from Slavic folklore, so it's coming from the same sources as Kashi the Deathless. A Russian nesting doll situation leads us into an Inception-style quest within a quest within a quest, and a big bad wolf has an identity crisis. It actually ends up not being so bad, and helping the hero quite a bit. I want to say thanks to your highness too, Addo101, Reanimated Self, Team Chaos 2014, Roxy Muldoon, Bicers or Bikers or Bickers, Signet 77, Jimmy PGB, Fair and Bright, Anna Banana Fofana, and Josh Bloodnut for the reviews on iTunes. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place for the time being, and you can find the show at itunes.mythpodcast.com. Also, quickly, I have a Patreon page. It's a crowdfunding site where you'd be able to support the show monetarily. If you want it, you can pledge any amount of money from $1 up. For $5 this month, less than the price of one-eighth of a pound of horsehair on Amazon.com, and yes, you can buy horsehair on Amazon.com, you can have access to an extra episode this month, as well as EPUB, Kindle, and PDF versions of the sources I've used. If you're interested, you can go to support.mythpodcast.com. Regardless, thank you so much for just listening. I really appreciate it. Also, it's the first show of the month, and sorry for all the announcements, but I really want to thank all the Patreon supporters from October. Thanks so much to Claire, Raul Antonio, Tara Bree, Kliegerman, Joachim Nyback, Molly Bell, Beth Posney, Nathan Sinclair, Dylan Jones, Cody Winnie, Mikey K, Zan Chima, Vivian Asimos, Don't Worry I'm Batman, so I guess maybe Bruce Wayne for that one, Alex Terea, Tom Pouncey, Zachary Zablowski, Chris Bathy, Lahari Indraganti, and Rebecca Weiser, Wiesner, Wiener, I'm not sure, weird last name. Anyway, thank you all so much for helping keeping this podcast going. You are amazing. And I am so incredibly grateful. The creature this week is the Saki from Brazilian folklore. He's a one-legged child, and when I say that, I mean that he just has one leg in the center of his body. He's not missing a leg. He smokes a pipe, and he has a magical red cap that enables him to disappear and reappear wherever he wants, though he usually travels through dust devils. Also, he has holes in the palms of his hands. He's generally just a prankster, but his little jokes aren't really funny and are just super annoying. The most benign are hiding children's toys and cursing popcorn kernels not to pop. 
So if you've ever bitten down on a kernel and nearly cracked your tooth, it's this little guy hopping around your house, cursing your popcorn. He can spill things around your house, drop flies in your soups, set your animals loose, or if he finds a nail laying on its side, he'll turn it point up, very nearly crossing the line of harmless prank. He won't cross running water, like a river, so that's a way to get away from him, and he's sort of obsessive-compulsive. So if you drop ropes with knots in them, he's compelled to stop and untie all the knots before moving on, giving you a chance to escape. He likes juggling, despite not really being able to. The things just fall through the holes in his palms. Despite only having one leg, he's able to ride a horse bareback and, somehow, sit cross-legged. I have absolutely no idea how that works. You can turn the tables on him by stealing his cap, and he'll become your slave and grant you wishes. The only problem? The cap is incredibly stinky. The smell is unbearable, and even if you give it back, you'll never be able to wash the smell of his dirty, stinky cap out of your hair. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Colmes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>